This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, from chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your feet against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship him. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were administering to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. It's true, Father, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are not animals. We need so much more than food. We are your image bearers. You've made us as creatures that have not only a body, but a soul in that body. And Father, we were made for you. We're made to know you and find our rest in you and find our joy in you. And we've preferred the world over you. But it doesn't profit a man anything if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. So we pray now that it would be your worth and what your son has done to show us your worth and to preserve us for your worth. That would be the great theme of our thinking and our worship now. So would you cause your son in his glory to stand forth from this portion of your word by the spirit? And would you act to build up your children and to save the lost? I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, Matthew is a very careful uh, writer and organizer uh, as he's uh, putting his gospel together. In the first four chapters, I've mentioned this to you before, the first four chapters of Matthew's gospel are like a like an overture at the beginning of a symphony or uh, a musical. And what happens in those first four chapters is that Matthew introduces all the major themes of, of Jesus's ministry. I think that's I think that's fair to say. And they're themes that he's going to unpack and give further exposition to the deeper we get into the, the gospel. And it all keys off of uh, what the Lord tells Joseph uh, to name his son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Now, how's he going to do that? That's the big question. How is he going to save his people from their sins? Did you know that every human being has two massive needs before God? These are the two most important questions that every human being is going to have to face and should be facing right now. Every human being has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that raises two questions that ought to be the top two questions on your list of what you should be paying attention to today. Question one is this. How can there be an answer for my sin? How, where is the answer going to come from for, for my sins against God, my Creator? In other words, how will my actual guilt for my actual sin be answered? And the second question, just as urgent, but often overlooked by people, is where will the righteousness come from that I'm obligated to give God? So, in other words, I am, because I am God's creature, because I am not just an animal, I was made to worship God and love Him and serve Him, then that means that I have two huge questions. The first is, what about my guilt? Where is the answer for that going to come from? That's an objective guilt in the sight of God. And then the second question is, and then even if my guilt is answered, where will the source of the righteousness come from that because I'm God's creature, I was obligated to give Him? It's not just an answer for my breaking of the law, but where is the answer for my need to fulfill the law? And unless I have both, I cannot be saved from my sins. So for Jesus to be about the mission from His Father of saving His people from their sins, it must mean that His ministry is about both of those questions. And that's exactly what Matthew shows us in these opening chapters He shows us first that Jesus saves his people from their sins by taking on our nature, by identifying with us completely in his incarnation. The Son of God, in order to save his people from their sins, the Son of God, this just should blow our minds. If you want a window into how seriously God takes sin, It required the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to become incarnate, friends. And that's what chapters 1 and 2 in Matthew's Gospel are about. But you know, as amazing as that is, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough for the Son of God just to become fully human. Fully man, but also as man, he must fulfill positively God's design for man. And that's what chapters three and four are about, really. We saw last week that Jesus' public ministry begins with his baptism, though he has no sins of his own to repent of. So what in the world is going on there? Why is he baptized? Why is the Son of God? Wasn't it enough that the Son of God would identify with our nature? That by itself is astonishing. Begotten of the Father's love. 
Like we just sang. No, it's not enough. He must be baptized because in order to save his people from their sins, he must so identify, not just with our nature, but with our needs. He must so identify himself with the condition of sinners that he is willing to go even to the point of carrying his manhood to the cross as the substitute of sinners. A drama that begins in his baptism. His identification with sinners begins at his baptism, if you will, publicly. And ends publicly at his cross where he bears the consequences for what we've done in our own flesh. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing that our conscience would be seared by our sin and God would provide the answer. Amazing. But that's not the full story. Because the riches of God's grace that are expressed in Jesus' ministry are yet bigger. And that's what we begin to see this morning, what Matthew shows us in chapter 4. Verses 1 through 11, what Jesus did immediately after his baptism. Notice uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him at the end of chapter 3. And then in that spirit empowering, notice he's led up. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What's going on there? Jesus is carrying his manhood into the wilderness to be tempted and tested, not in our place. So he's not just going to die in our place, but before he dies in our place, what's going to give his death the power to set us free from our sins is the quality of the life that he lives before he reaches the cross. It's how he carries his humanity in perfect conformity to the law of God before he ever gets to the cross. He fulfills everything of the law of God for us. You see, he and he alone, friends, is the answer to both of those questions that you have. That I have. That every human being has. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at Jesus' triumph in the wilderness. And uh, two headings. Just two. I know that violates uh, Presbyterian decorum, but just two. The triumph of Jesus and then secondly, the meaning of Jesus' triumph. And I just want to flag this right away. The, the meaning of Jesus' triumph is not that he is your example. He is your champion or he is nothing. He is your champion or he is nothing. The difference, if it doesn't feel like a big difference to you, whether you look at Jesus as your example or your champion, I want to say to you with all urgency that I can muster, the difference between those two things is the same as the difference between hell and heaven. So it's utterly critical to see uh, what God is doing in Jesus. Let's look uh, first at, at um, just a couple of preliminary things. I know this is a longer introduction than normal. It's so critical to have this in focus. There are two things about Jesus' entrance in the wilderness that I want you to see that I don't want you to, to miss. And the first is Jesus is the king in the wilderness. Did you notice that? He goes into the wilderness. It's he, After he's filled with the Spirit, the Spirit comes down upon him. He moves into the wilderness to engage the battle with Satan on his own terms and in his own strength, at his own initiative. Do you see that? Jesus isn't ambushed or caught off guard. 
in the wilderness. This is a picture of Jesus bringing the battle to Satan. Jesus entering enemy territory. God incarnate fighting a battle for us. Taking back what rightfully belongs to Him. And do you notice how Jesus' authority is just so clear at the end? When He's done, He just says, get out of here. And Satan obeys Him. So please, don't ever think about this as a conflict between equals. It's not. And neither is history. And secondly, I want you to see that Jesus doesn't only go into the wilderness as a king. He goes in there as a servant. You notice what he's doing is he is taking back history where there has been failure in the past. He is fulfilling a history uh, with triumph that has only been uh, full of failure in the past. You know, just as Israel, what Jesus is doing is he is showing himself to be the true Israelite. Jesus passes through the waters of baptism and goes into the wilderness as the Son of God who brings salvation. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea and went into the wilderness as a Son of God, according to Exodus 4, needing salvation. And where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus is triumphant. But much more than that, much more than that, that's, by the way, why Jesus only quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the the book of uh, that, that, the book that contains Moses's last sermons to the generation that's leaving the wilderness. So Jesus is identifying himself with the wilderness generation, and he's saying, "Where they failed, I succeed." But even more deeply than that, Jesus is fulfilling where Adam, fulfilling what Adam failed to fulfill. Adam could not even resist the temptations of Satan when he was in a lush and perfect garden, and our Savior. Now, in the ultimate deprivation in the wilderness, is triumphant. He is making a new humanity. He is God's chosen one to be on our side to remake humanity. And He's triumphant. But He's triumphant through testing. So let's look first at the first temptation. Verses 3 and 4. Satan comes to him and uh, targets. His first target really is Jesus' own uh, regard for his unique identity. It's actually kind of a brilliant move. He comes to him and he says, If you are the Son of God, verse 3, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. And... Uh, I don't think we're meant to understand that this is the first temptation that Jesus has experienced uh, from uh, Satan while he's in the wilderness. If you look at Mark and Luke, it's clear that as soon as Jesus, is, Jesus enters the wilderness, he's, he's being tempted. But this is the first temptation that is actually recorded. And what, what, what the devil does is he approaches Jesus. He says, hey, listen, I know you're hungry. Uh, you've been here for 40 days fasting. If you're the Son of God, then command these loaves to become bread. It's absolutely brilliant. Because what he's doing is he's trying to drive two wedges simultaneously into both of Jesus' most fundamental relationships. First, his relationship with his Father, and then his relationship with humanity. 
let's think first about how this temptation is challenging Jesus to cut himself off from the Father. Satan very cleverly uses language that is supposed to be an echo, although it's an incomplete and misleading echo, but it's, it's designed to be an echo of the Father's a statement at Jesus' baptism at the end of chapter 3. Verse 17, remember what the Father says? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now what does Satan do? He says, well, okay. If you are the Son of God, Now, notice what Satan does. He leaves out three critical things that were in the Father's statement. He leaves out my. Not just my son. Now you're just the son. He leaves out beloved. And he leaves out well-pleased. See, what he's doing is he's trying to isolate Jesus. He's trying to take away. He's trying to... Plant in Jesus. This is how He always works. This is how every single temptation works, friends. The temptations in your life work in this way. To call into question the goodness of God. The reliability of God. You see what Satan is doing? Is he saying, he didn't mean that. You're the Son of God. Now just think about yourself. Your relationship to the Father? Where is He now? Where has He been for the last 40 days? Whether He loves you or not? Sure doesn't look like it. Is He well pleased in you? Then why are you suffering? Friends, that's how every temptation you and I experience works. It tries to cut us off from the approval and the love and the acceptance of the Father. You are never more vulnerable than when you isolate yourself from the Gospel. But he's not just interested in driving a wedge between Jesus and His Father. He also wants to drive a wedge between Him and His humanity. Because Satan knows that no ordinary man can turn stones into bread, right? And so what he's encouraging him to do is to say, hey, listen, you're suffering. What I encourage you to do is to use your deity at the expense of your humanity. Be a superman. You're hungry. And notice what Jesus does. It's so remarkable how he defeats this temptation. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. And in one fell swoop, he destroys both edges of that temptation. He rejects both wedges and affirms his relationship to the Father and his relationship to us and our humanity. He says, it is written, right? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, he is saying instantly that, you know what? Obedience to God and honoring God matters more than the relief of my suffering. He honors his father that way. He trusts in God when he's at the very, very outermost edges of what a human being is capable of enduring. But do you notice the way he does it? He not only affirms his relationship to his father, but what's the very first word in the scripture he quotes from Deuteronomy 8? Man. Now, friends, you see what Jesus is doing when it would have been very easy for him to distance himself from his humanity, from the implications of his incarnation, when it would have been so simple, when it cost him so much to stay identified with our humanity, what does he do? 
when he thrusts himself in opposition against that temptation, he does it by identifying himself as a man who is under the authority of God's word. And he says, I'm a man. I'm a real man. And that means that I, as a man, am obligated to obey God's commands. I'm not an animal. Obedience to God matters more than bread. I was made with a soul just like every other human being. And I have come to wage war against you as a man for men. Don't ever think about our Lord's incarnation or the way he thinks about it as something that he's reluctant to embrace. No one's looking here except God and Satan. And he says, I'm a man. What possible explanation could there be for that? But a boundless love. For his people, when no one was looking except his father and Satan, when it cost him greatly, he said, I'm a man. No man has ever resisted Satan fully. No man has ever resisted a temptation fully. No man has ever lived without sin. And if I do not, no one will. And then no one will be saved. It will be impossible to save my people from their sins. So I will hold fast as a man under the commandments of God, something that no one has ever done. I am the pioneer. I must remain faithful. Now, as great as that is, as great as his self-understanding as a man and presenting himself before God and others as a man, friends, it's just a preview of his greatest identification with, with our humanity, isn't it? I mean, there was a day coming when Jesus, just about three years later, when Jesus would be under much greater pressure, when his identification with our humanity would cost him much more, so much more. And he would hold fast to that humanity. He would refuse to be ashamed of calling us his brothers on the cross. When he didn't just live by the word of God, he died by the words that came out of the mouth of God. And he labored under the silence that came from the mouth of his father and cried out in desolation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, friends, he was perfectly capable of relieving his own misery there. I read it this morning in Mark 15. The people walking by, the scribes and the chief priests, well, hey, Mr. Son of God, King of the Jews, save yourself. Come down from the cross. It's precisely because he was king and because he was the Son of God that he refused to come down from that cross so that he might save his people from their sins. Friends, how can we ever ever call into question his commitment to us. Second temptation, verses 5 through 7. Now, if the first temptation was um, an attempt by Satan to get Jesus basically to take care of himself, okay? Hey, if you're the Son of God, make lunch. Use your power. Use your deity to downplay your humanity. 
If that was really the drama, the first temptation, the second temptation is different. It has a different nuance. Look at what he says. And this is where he's learned from Jesus's quoting of Scripture. He's adapted, but he he twists Psalm 91. By the way, that's worth a whole sermon series by itself. At least 13 messages. But notice what he does. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, by the way, that's like ground zero for an Israelite. The temple, pinnacle of the temple. It's like the holiest place in Israel. He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written. He's now using Scripture. By the way, just because somebody uses Scripture doesn't mean they're good. Can we, can we just say that? So just because somebody opens the Bible on television doesn't mean you should listen to them? Okay? Are we, are we clear on that? Okay. Wow. Don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. See, the only way you defeat this kind of stuff is to know your Bible better. Right? If you don't know your Bible, you're vulnerable to this kind of nonsense. It's dangerous. So don't expose yourself to peril unnecessarily. It is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's Satan doing? He's saying, listen, you're the Son of God. What he's calling into question is the Father's regard for Jesus. Not Jesus' regard for his own identity, but now the Father's regard for Jesus. And he's saying, listen, if you're the Son of God, then God's not going to let you die. He's going to prevent you from dying. Your Father is going to rise up and defend you no matter what happens. He's going to insulate you. He will not let you, the Son of God, ever come to any kind of harm. And Jesus triumphs over that temptation again. And how does he do it? He does it. By identifying himself again with the wilderness generation, it's absolutely amazing, not repudiating his humanity. And Jesus says in verse seven, Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test and that you is the wilderness generation. Jesus is putting himself under that commandment. That's absolutely amazing. He doesn't treat himself as a special case. Guys, you should be so encouraged that when you weren't looking or I wasn't looking or we weren't even thinking about it, down to the most minute detail of the requirements of God's righteousness, Jesus always was acting in a way to uphold that righteousness, to fulfill the law of God so that at the end of his life, he would be able to present to God on the behalf of his people, a lamb. He present himself as a lamb without any blemish. And then in the power of his resurrection, he would then have a righteousness that was perfect that he could then bestow and impute to everyone who would believe on him for salvation, which he is still willing and able to do this morning. So careful. But even this is just a preview of his greatest triumph at Calvary, isn't it? You see, the wonder of the gospel is this. Satan thinks that if Jesus is the Son of God, then the Father is going to prevent 
him from dying. But the wonder of the gospel is exactly the opposite. It's precisely because Jesus is the Son of God that the Father is not only not going to prevent his death, but he's going to plan it. You see, because there was no other way to save the people of God from their sins. Only if the Son of God died. Only if the Son of God was not spared harm. Only if He brought to that cross as the substitute of His people. Only if He brought Himself in all of His perfect obedience to the cross and gave Himself in that unblemished purity of His righteousness. Only then could the people of God be saved. Satan's exactly wrong. He doesn't understand the heart of God. And the irony of the gospel is that the way Jesus demonstrates his father's faithfulness most clearly is not by avoiding death, but by embracing it at Calvary, because it was at Calvary when he gave himself in the place of his people that two amazing things happened simultaneously. And they were the only he he was the only way these things could happen. And this is the wisdom of the gospel. This is why there is no greater subject for a human being to ever spend any time in thinking about. Yes, you should be good at your jobs. Yes, you should study butterflies. Yes, you should be great musicians. You should be faithful business owners. You should be clever inventors. But friends, the great subject that is going to consume and fill our hearts with joy for all eternity is the limitless wisdom of God in the design and accomplishment of the salvation of His people. Because at the cross... God not preventing the death of His Son, but planning it from before the foundation of the world. Not only were the people of God able to be saved from their sins, but Jesus was also in the same event able to demonstrate the full range of God's perfections. Answering His justice. Demonstrating His righteousness. And demonstrating His love. Vindicating God. And all because the Son of God was not prevented from dying. Friends, God calls you to rest on Christ's body of work this morning. You see, Jesus did all of that. He accomplished all of that in history. That happened and it happened for those reasons, according to the plan and purpose of God. Why would, go, why would God go through with that? Well, we know from Matthew one twenty one, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Well, who are his people? Everyone and anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You and I today can know that we're His people. Not by going to church. Not by growing up in a Christian family. Not by trying to live a good life. But by embracing Christ and acknowledging your need that your body of work, as it will, as, if you will, could never be good enough to satisfy both of those huge questions. Only the work of another, only the work of Jesus would be sufficient to answer both those questions for you in the affirmative. And so, friends, you must come. 
You can't be a bystander. If you're a bystander, you're a hater. If you're a bystander, you're indifferent. If you're a bystander, you're on the wrong side of history. If you're on a bystander, you're making yourself a stranger to the mercy of God. What possible reason could there be for you to resist this offer of God based on the work of His Son? God's not giving you a to-do list. He's giving you a come-to-my-son command. Rest in His work. What possible reason could you have to resist Christ? Whatever it is, it's not good enough. So don't do it anymore. Friends, do you realize that this is not a legend? That this is the actual structure of the universe? That the God who made the universe, who keeps the universe going, who holds back his wrath when men say stupid things like they did in California and do wicked things. That God has moved into the world personally in Jesus Christ to not only to quell, to, to quell the rebellion of his image bearers against him by, this is what's so astonishing, not by squashing them which is what we deserve. But by absorbing in His Son the consequences of their rebellion and Himself paying the price of our redemption. It just boggles my mind how beautiful it is. I've been a Christian for 30 years. And, and I feel like a brand new Christian the wonder over the gospel that I, I just see in this gospel. Friends, I just long for you to be captured by it. I long for, for God to take us to a new level with Himself, a, a new level of wonder and joy over the work that He's done in His Son. I long for that, that power of Christ as our champion to break through to new levels of understanding in us and worship and awe and reverence and joy. And I long for Christ to capture more people in our midst. And look at the third temptation, which in many ways, my friends, is the, is the climax. And, and, and Satan comes to him and says, okay, um, he takes him to a very high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory he literally shows him the best of the earth and he says, I'll give all of this to you if you'll just worship me. Now, don't get distracted on whether Satan has the ability to fulfill that offer. Of course he does. He's a liar. Hello. Let's just move on to the key issue, which is Jesus' response. Jesus knows that what Satan is offering him is a crossless path to his inheritance. See, all you have to do, Jesus, is just worship me. Give me your loyalty. You can avoid the cross. You, you, you deserve all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. You're the son of God, right? I mean, this is your inheritance. Isn't this what God promised you in Psalm 2? Didn't he say, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance? Isn't, isn't this your inheritance as the son of David and the son of God? You, you are rightfully entitled 
as uh, the, the second Adam to fill the earth and subdue it and take possession of it for the glory of God? Isn't that you're right, Jesus? Well, do it. And you know what? This cross thing, you don't have to do that. I'll just give it to you. The, the only price is you have to worship me. Now, it's because there's an echo of this temptation later on in chapter 16 when Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, you don't understand. You're not going to die and suffer. That Jesus comes out with the strongest thing he ever says to anyone. The harshest thing he ever says to anyone. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because exactly the same logic is operating. And Jesus fends off this temptation. He says, no. You shall worship, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. What keeps Jesus? What keeps Jesus is a vision of how valuable God is. That's what worship is about. We are giving to God in some small measure uh, what he's worth. And that's what our lives are supposed to be. That's why he made us. Satan is right. Jesus does deserve all the kingdoms of the earth and deserves all the glory. Satan is right that title to the earth depends on worship. But what Satan is is wrong about and what Jesus is right about is that Jesus' path to his inheritance cannot be at the expense of his own soul. And he knows that what human life is designed to do and therefore what his life preeminently is designed to do is to show the worth of God and to prove the worth of God. And later on, Jesus is going to say in Matthew 16 as well, he's going to say, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? See, that's spoken by one who, who knows from his personal experience who's actually been offered the whole world and turns it down because he knows God and he knows what his father is worth. And he's he's eager to defend the glory of God and to do what no man has ever done. God was great in Jesus's eye. Jesus saw God's true worth and he defended that true worth so clearly he was willing to demonstrate the worth of his father by going to the cross. And even while he was on the cross, friends, when Jesus had every opportunity to call down legions of angels to set himself free, he refrained from doing that so that he could uphold the righteousness of his father and the love and mercy of his father at his own expense. It is awesome. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? You know, by the way, Jesus does get all the nations at the end of Matthew's gospel, doesn't he? When he appears to his disciples on that mountain in Galilee, what's the first thing he says? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He gets much more than the earth. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? Are we just supposed to look at Jesus' obedience here and say, okay, I'm glad that happened. What's its relevance to me and to you? Well, there are basically two responses to that, and they're as different as... They could possibly be. They're irreconcilable and they're incompatible. You can either look at Jesus' triumph in the wilderness and you can say, well, the meaning of that triumph is there's the blueprint that God uh, wants me to follow. Or you can look at Jesus' obedience as your shelter. Now, let me explain what I mean. If you respond by saying that Jesus 
Jesus' obedience and triumph in the wilderness is simply a blueprint. What you're, in effect, saying is that Jesus is only your example. And that means that he went into the wilderness not only by himself, but for himself. That means that the reason Matthew 4 is in the Bible is so that we can see God is showing us what we're to do for our salvation instead of what God has done for our salvation. And now you might say, well, I don't, that's ridiculous. I would never believe that Jesus is our example. Well, it's amazing how many people actually, though they don't use those words, actually regard Jesus that way. And let me tell you what it sounds like so you can recognize it, either in yourself or in people you interact with. You see, when you, when you have blueprint, a blueprint is what you use when you're the builder, right? When you're the builder. And so people, there are all kinds of people who, without overtly rejecting Jesus, actually use him as a blueprint. And here's what it sounds like. It sounds like this. Um, no one's perfect, but uh, God wants me to live, uh, my, to do my best to live well. And, and if I live a, a morally above average life, at least I'm not like that guy. You know, I'm not Newt Gingrich or I'm not Barack Obama. Take your pick. I'm not that guy and I'm not that guy. But, you know, morally, I'm basically above average. And, you know, if at the end of my life there's more good than bad, yeah, even if it's 51 to 49, God will welcome me in. Because he's good. Friends, you realize how deadly that is? The only way you can hold that together is with three massive lies. You have to lie about man. You have to look at sin through the eyes of man and not the eyes of God. And sin is against God in the first instance. So, really, what men think about our sin is irrelevant. Sins against God. Remember what, the, what King David says? Against you. You only have I sinned. So to believe that, that you can just follow a blueprint of Jesus' obedience and, and work your way into the kingdom of heaven, you have, to, you have to lie about man. You have to lie about yourself. You have to think. You have to believe that you can understand your own heart. Friend, do you understand your own heart? You know you don't. How many times do you say in a day, I didn't mean to do that? How many times are you just kind of amazed at how, how you do things and you re- you're filled with regret later on? That means you don't understand your own heart. You know, the prophet Jeremiah didn't understand his own heart. He said, you know, the heart is desperately wicked and beyond understanding. It's sick. Who can, who can understand your own heart? If you think you understand your own heart, you're a better man or woman than prophet Jeremiah. But even the Apostle Paul, Romans 7, says... I do the very things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Are you better than the Apostle Paul? Of course not. None of us is. And and what, what makes it possible to admit that is that God's going to give you an answer in Jesus. It'll make it possible for you to be honest about yourself. But if you're the builder and you're following the blueprint, you can't afford to admit that you've messed it up. So you've got to lie about man. you also got to lie about God. You've got to say, well, God can't be as holy as, 
as uh, the Bible seems to say he is. He can't be that holy. I can, I can earn my way into God's standard. Do you understand how great God is? Friends, it's amazing. Sure, you might be standing uh, on the top of Mount Everest and your wicked friend, whoever your, bad, your ultimate bad guy is, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, I don't care who it is. Just pick the worst person you can think of that you could compare yourself to and go, huh, at least I'm not that guy. You got one of those? I hope it's not me. Okay, now I want you to think. Take, take you and then take that really bad guy. You stand on the top of Everest. And this bad guy, let's assume we drain the oceans, just for purposes of my example. And that bad guy is at the bottom of the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean. That means 35,000 feet that way. That means there's 60, roughly 64,000 feet separating you guys. That's a big difference. But now I want you to both, instead of looking at each other, I want you to look at the stars. And I want to ask you, can either one of you touch the stars? That's God's holiness. And to think that Jesus is your blueprint and your example that you can use is to be absolutely wrong about who God is. It's so serious. And you've got to lie about Jesus. You've got to say, you know, Jesus' incarnate life before the cross was just an overreaction by God. Are you really willing to say that? I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care what your life looks like. Friends, your life is not good enough to touch the stars. And I don't care if you've spent your whole life in the Marianas Trench. You know what? Your life is not so bad that God, if God comes down to touch you, that you can't be raised up into his kingdom because Jesus is not a blueprint. Christianity is not a blueprint religion. Christianity and the gospel are a shelter religion. The gospel is a shelter. Jesus Christ is the only builder, my friends. Jesus Christ is not an example. He's the champion of his people, just like we see him in the wilderness. He came to wage war for us. He came through his own obedience. The only man who could ever live up to what God's blueprint for humanity was. And he followed that blueprint every moment of his incarnate life, all the way to death, through death, in his resurrection so that there would be a shelter available because of his obedience, that he would welcome any who would rely upon him into eternally. Friends, that's God's call to you this morning. To rest not in an example, but in the champion. See, Luther was right. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name. From age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Friends, which of these, exam- which of these options brings more glory to, to God? Example or champion? Which of these two examples uh, makes Jesus look bigger in your eyes and more beautiful in your eyes? Example or champion? Which of these two examples, which, sorry, which of these two options uh, grabs your heart uh, more deeply 
and frees you and deepens your joy? Jesus as an example or Jesus as a champion? Which of these two options binds your heart to Christ more in love? Jesus as your example or Jesus as your champion? Oh, friends, it's because Jesus is the champion that he can make and keep the promise that he he will make later on in, in Matthew 11, where he says, come to me, come to my shelter, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because I am the shelter of sinners. Let's pray. Lord, hallelujah. You're not an example. You're our shelter. And it's your faithfulness, not our own, that is our shield and our bulwark. We give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we now sing, At the Name of Jesus.